Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, onto the show. Today's guest is James Clear. James is an author and speaker focused on habits, decision making, and continuous improvement. He's a regular speaker at Fortune 500 companies, and his work is used by teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball. His website, jamesclear.com, receives millions of visitors each month, and nearly half a million people subscribe to his popular email newsletter. James is also the author of Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones, which is a New York Times bestselling book. James, welcome to the show. Hi, great to talk to you. Yeah, it's, I'm really glad to have you on. And, uh, you know, we're entering a new year, 2019. And so I think this is a perfect time to have you on and share some of your uh, your deep work and your findings. But before we get into that, maybe you could give a little bit of background uh, of yourself and um, how you kind of became a, an, an expert in sort of habits and, uh, and this sort of thing. Sure. So I've been writing about habits, behavior change, continuous improvement for the last six years now. Um, the first three years, I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday at jamesclear.com. And it was really that writing habit that kind of uh, fashioned my knowledge and expertise on the topic. I remember early on, I was uh, thinking, you know, kind of like, who am I to write about this stuff? Or, you know, and uh, I had a friend who told me, well, the way you become an expert is by writing about it every week. And so I sort of internalized that idea. And then after a few years, uh, the site had grown to a pretty significant degree. And um, I was able to leverage that to get introduced to agents and publishers. And I spent the last three years researching and writing uh, Atomic Habits, which is the book that, um, that I came out with in 2018. And uh, it's sort of the culmination of all the thinking and work uh, that I put into the topic. And um, prior to all of that, I had a background as an athlete and as someone who had majored in the sciences. So I took mostly chemistry and physics classes in undergrad and played baseball. And uh, both of those were areas where I was able to learn through practice uh, how to build better habits. So, of course, as an athlete, there are all kinds of habits that you're building on the field or in the gym. And uh, as a student and as a scientist, I uh, had all sorts of things that I needed to learn about what makes an idea true, what makes an idea valid, uh, how do we stress test those, and that's all kinds of stuff that I use now when I'm thinking about a topic or writing about it. Yeah, that's a great introduction. I think that uh, it's very clear if if you were to read the book or any of your articles, um, the sort of scientific way that that you present, uh, you know, sort of the argument and and how you walk through the analysis. So I think that uh, it's 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 helpful because it's uh, you articulate it in a in a clear and concise way. Um, you know, I mean, as someone who uh, has sort of written in the past myself, and and I've I've done blogging before and that sort of thing. Um, First of all, uh, it's it's impressive. Uh, your site is you, you know you put out really good content. I, I feel like there's only a handful of people in the sort of somewhat recent years uh, after Web 2.0 uh, emerged that have successfully built such large followings. And um, obviously, that's testament to the quality of your work. Um, and also, you know, writing a book is is no simple feat, um, let alone the New York Times bestselling book. So congratulations on that. Um, all well deserved. And uh, I'm excited to get into the content of the book and share it with the audience today. For those listening that aren't aware of sort of how that whole process uh, works, you could probably Google it and find out, but it's it's uh, it's it's definitely something to be proud of. Um, so let's get right into the book. You you begin with sort of a quite quite a graphic sort of intimate story from uh, from your earlier years in high school. Um, maybe you could start with that because uh, it really kind of drew me in when I when I read it and um, and talk about how that experience led you uh, down this path of uh, you know of of personal habit forming. So my sophomore year in high school, I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. Uh, ended up being a very serious injury. I shattered both eye sockets, broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose. Um, I couldn't breathe on my own, had trouble swallowing and doing other basic functions, um, suffered multiple seizures. I ended up being air care to the hospital and helicopter. Um, I was placed into a medically induced coma overnight. 
And uh, thankfully, the next day I was stabilized to the point where I could be released from the coma and this kind of very long process of healing began. So I was, you know, doing basic things like practicing walking in a straight line at my first uh, physical therapy session. I was uh, unable to drive for eight of the next nine months. Um, Yeah, it was a long road. And Baseball was not only the cause of my injury, but also a major part of my life at that time. And so I wanted to get back on the field, but Hmm. I was not in a position where I could like make a radical transformation or go right back to, you know, the level of performance that I had before I basically, my hand was forced. I had to start small. And so I just started by doing, you know, I would do my physical therapy stuff. I would do just little habits, things that I could actually manage, you know, like I would prepare for class or I would go to, um, I would go to the gym a couple times each week. I started working out consistently. I would, uh, make sure that I got in bed at a reasonable time each night. And none of those habits by themselves were really like compelling or amazing. There's nothing, uh, earth shattering about that. But I continued to stick with that philosophy of trying to find these little ways to improve. And I, I didn't really have a, a language for it at the time. Like I wouldn't have said, oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better. But mm-hmm. effectively, that's, that's what I was doing. And so this was the period in my life where I kind of had to practice a lot of the ideas that a few, a few years later, I would write about in Atomic Habits. And so uh, the next year, um, I was cut from the baseball team. After that, I was on the team, but barely got to play. I did end up making a college team. Uh, first year, I just came off the bench. Second year, I was a starter. Third year, I was the captain. And then uh, fourth season, I ended up being an academic All-American. And so nice. although I don't, I never played professionally, and I, I don't think there's anything like, you know, uh, magical about my story or legendary, like we all have challenges we face. And this injury just happened to be one of mine. What I do think is true is that I was able to fulfill my potential. I was able to make the most of that opportunity. And this is one of the reasons why I believe so strongly in small habits and why they matter, which is that if you can master your habits, then I think you can fulfill your potential as well, regardless of what life happens to throw your way. And, um, so the quest of atomic habits is to distill that, to talk about how habits work and understand why we make the, uh, the actions that we do, whether they're, it's a slightly positive habit or a slightly negative one and how to shape those. So the, the book discusses not only the science of habits, but also the practical action steps to take. Um, I wanted it to be a highly actionable framework for how to implement uh, a good habit or how to change a bad one. And, um, so my, my story played a big role in that discovery process. I imagine it's, it's a bit like if, uh, so your accident kind of actually, it's almost like a, it wiped the, the, the slate clean. So you could actually focus on the micro as opposed to just living life. You know, I mean, I think most of us, we kind of just live life and maybe around new year's time, uh, you trying to make resolutions and, and, and follow that for at least a month. But, um, you never actually are focused on sort of the micro to the point where, I mean, for in your case, you had to focus on these micro habits just because that was affecting your life directly, you know, like getting out of bed or, or going to the gym. Um, and I think a lot of people take that for granted. You know, I don't wish, uh, an accident on anyone, but I think that it's helpful, uh, to remind ourselves that, um, you know, the, the little things that we do during the day, we kind of overlook and we don't see how they fall into the big picture. Uh, so, can you describe, explain, um, you know, the title of your book is Atomic Habits. Obviously, you know, there's a, there's a science reference to that. Maybe you can start there and explain why you named it Atomic Habit. Sure. So I chose the phrase Atomic Habits for three reasons. Um, the first meaning of the word atomic is the one that you might guess or think about small or tiny, like an atom. And that is a big part of my philosophy. We've already mentioned it a little bit that I think habits should be small and easy to do. The second meaning of the word atomic is the one that's often overlooked, and that is that it's the fundamental unit in a larger system. So like atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds, and so on. Mm. And in a sense, habits are kind of like the atoms of our lives. You know, they're kind of like these little routines or patterns that you do each day. And when you put them all together, you end up with the system that is your daily routine. And then the third and final meaning of the word atomic is the source of immense energy or power. And I think that if you combine all three of those meanings, you understand the narrative arc of the book, which is 
You make changes that are small and easy to do, and you layer them on top of each other like units in a larger system, then you can end up with some really powerful or remarkable results in the long run. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a great name. It's a very apt. Um, and so in touching on what you kind of just went over, I mean, you, you discussed how, you know, you, you had a, you had a good sports career, uh, in school, uh, playing baseball. And, you know, while you didn't end up playing professionally, you, you, you just, you made a comment and you said you fulfilled your potential or something like that. Um, and then in the book you talk about, uh, I think you, the, the quote you used was forget about goals, focus on systems. So I find this pretty interesting, especially in this day and age where everyone kind of, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff on the internet out there talking about goals and goal setting. And especially, like I said, New Year's resolutions, uh, people like to set goals and they think that that is the most important thing. You have to have your goal. You have to figure out where you're going in life. Um, let's put that part aside and let's talk about, uh, what you specifically said, forget about your goals, focus on the systems. Um, let's, let's assume that the listener of this podcast today, uh, knows what he, they, they, he or she wants to do or accomplish. Um, so in, in that context, how do you, um, how do you unpack that, that phrase that you wrote, um, forget about goals, focus on systems. So the basic idea here is not that goals are totally useless. Uh, then this is coming from someone who has set a lot of goals. You know, I, I set goals for all kinds of stuff like, mm the weights I wanted to lift in the gym or the grades I wanted to get in school, how well I wanted my business to do over the next quarter, like um, many different areas. But at some point, what I realized was that, well, some of these goals I achieve, but a lot of them I don't. So clearly having the goal is not the thing that leads to the result happening. And so the natural next question is, well, what is it then? You know, what is actually, what actually drives the results? And the phrase that I like that I think encapsulates this idea is you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. And mm. so the, the point here is that having a goal can be useful for setting a sense of direction, for developing some clarity around what you're going to work on or where you're going to allocate your attention and energy. But as soon as you've done that, uh, almost all the effort should be going into the system. And I would define the system as the habits and processes that you follow each day. So the collection of habits that you have, that's the system of behaviors that you follow. And in many ways, the outcomes that we set these goals for, that we think so badly that we want, are just a natural consequence of the systems that we follow. You know, like your your outcomes are just a lagging measure of your habits. Your weight is a lagging measure of your eating habits. Your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Hmm. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. And so in a sense, you get what you repeat. And if you can change what you're repeating, if you can change the habits that make up your system, then different outcomes will, will uh, result naturally. Yeah. So you go and you give a, a few very good examples in the book. Um, and you, you know, you talk about this, uh, this concept called the plateau of latent potential, which um, is sort of the, um, the longer term greedy type mentality, uh, or, or lower time preference uh, mentality. And I, I find that fascinating, because, uh, you know, I mean, my background is, um, is, is from f finance, and I'm, I'm an investor. And uh, these are sort of things that are that run very parallel with with uh, with investing and and the market and how most market participants have a very short term time frame and a very high time preference, whereas the investors that are successful uh, and this has been brought up in many studies like the marshmallow test and the sort of thing that uh, that um, you know people that have lower time preference um, are able to to be much more successful um, and so. I, you know, I was I was uh, delighted when I read your book that you know this also comes into play when when you talk about habits. So um, maybe you can talk a little bit about the plateau of latent potential. I mean, you have a really nice graph in one of the pages of your book that explains exactly uh, how that works, and uh, maybe you could give a couple examples as well. So uh, first, just talking about this idea of time preference, uh, a different phrase that we could use that kind of gets at the same idea is delayed gratification versus mm -hmm. immediate mm -hmm. gratification. And basically, people who are willing to delay their gratification uh, tend to get better results in the long run. Um, right. You know, there are all sorts of nuances here, but that's just the kind of the general thing we're talking about. And the question then is like, well, how does this tie back into this plateau of latent potential idea that you just mentioned? And why is that important for habits? So the reason that I would say it's important is because habits don't really add up. They sort of compound. Uh, so the same way that 
money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them across time. And mm-hmm. that's why I like to say habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. Right. Because it's it's not exactly like it, but man, it feels a lot like that. You know, the same way that you you might save $100 this month for retirement and it doesn't feel like anything. You're like, oh, why do I bother? Like, I can't retire on $100. But if you can stick to that habit for months and years and then you turn around a decade or two or three later, you kind of get to that hockey stick portion of the curve where all of a sudden it starts to take off. And habits are kind of like that too. And this is like a hallmark of any compounding process where all the greatest returns are delayed. In the beginning, it kind of feels like you're not making much progress at all. Mm-hmm. And then where we get to that plateau of latent potential idea, which is that we feel, we often think that if I put in a little bit of work, I should get a little bit of a result. So we think that it should be kind of like this uh, linear progression where you're going up sort of up and to the right at like a 45 degree angle. And so put in a little bit of work, get a little bit of results, put in a little more work, get a little more results. But the process of building habits is often different than that. You know, you'll hear people say things like, oh, I've been running for a month. How come I can't see any change in my body? Mm -hmm. You know, we're like, I'm studying Spanish every night, but I still don't know the language. And so there's kind of this like early on, there's this period of needing to bank work and put in the reps and just kind of repeat things without having the outcome. Similar to saving for retirement for a few years, even though you can't retire yet and all the rewards are delayed. And so I like to equate it to um, the process of like heating up an ice cube, you know, or, uh, or perhaps a better example, a quicker quote to share would be this. There's this quote that's in the San Antonio Spurs, the basketball team, their locker room that says, when I feel like giving up, I look at the stone cutter who um, keeps hammering away at a stone more than a hundred times without it cracking in two. And then on the 101st blow, it splits in half. And I know that it wasn't the 101st that did it, but the hundred that came before. Right. And that's kind of the same idea with habits, you know, like you're banging away on this stone and you don't have anything to show for it. And then all of a sudden, um, it releases that latent potential. And so the idea here is that When you're working on your habits and you feel like you haven't made progress or it's been a month and you don't have anything to show for it, that work is not being wasted. It's just being stored and you need to keep at it until you do it long enough for it to release. And so that's kind of the core idea behind this plateau of latent potential. Yeah, I think it's 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 a difficult concept for a lot of people to to grasp because I think it's human nature that we want things now, and and you know you you people get impatient and and uh, and part of the the problem I I feel is is this whole sort of uh, life hacking and and the hacking movement where you try to have shortcuts and you know look that that sells on the internet and and people buy that because they want to find shortcuts uh, and they want to they don't want to have to put in the the reps or or pound away at the stone uh for for what could be an indefinite amount of time before they kind of hit that plateau and so i think that it's it's important that to realize that hey you know what you see and what you're being sold is not always What's true, you know, you mentioned going running for a month or jogging, trying to lose weight. And, you know, anyone that's sort of uh, tried to sort of cut or lean out into um, a, a sort of very low body fat uh, will know that it's the same sort of thing. It's just patience. You just have to keep 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 putting in the work, keep putting in the work and keep keep uh, working towards the goal. And it's there's no sort of magical a spot reduction or or how to you know stubborn body fat all that stuff so so it's um it's 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 a real thing and uh, i think that the sooner people kind of realize that you have to put in you have to compound that sort of work before you see the potential um the easier it becomes for them so um so that's a great concept that you bring up in the book. Let's talk directly about how to build better habits uh, or how to break bad habits because there's that side too. And and so you, you cover both, which I think is important because I think everyone out there has something that they wish that they could stop doing just as much as um, something that they wish they could start doing. For sure. So in the book, I like to break a habit into four different stages. And mm-hmm. I think that if you can understand these four stages, you have a better or more clear view of what a habit is and how it works. And then I offer a framework for adjusting those four stages and changing it. So um, just real quickly from a high level, uh, the four stages that a habit, pretty much every habit goes through are what I call cue, craving, response, and reward. So 
the cue is the first stage. It's something that catches your attention. So like your phone buzzes in your pocket and that might be, uh, you know, like a physical cue. You feel it buzzing that gets your attention or you walk into a kitchen and you see a plate of cookies on the counter. And so in that case, it's like a visual cue and it could be any of the five senses, but something grabs your attention. Now, the second stage, and this is an important one that uh, separates my model from um, from some of the others that are out there, mm-hmm. is what I call the craving. And basically, this idea, uh, the second stage is about how you interpret the cue. And the reason it's important is it describes what motivates us to take action, and it describes uh, why two people might have different habits in the same context. So, for example... You might walk into a room and you see a pack of cigarettes on a table. And to one person who has been a smoker for years, they interpret that visual cue as, oh, I have a craving to smoke. I should pick one up. And so their response is they grab a cigarette. But to the second person who's never smoked a day in their life, they see it. And to them, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just neutral. And so it's really about the meaning that you assign to the cues and experiences in your life that determines how you respond. So the craving is the right. second stage. The third stage is the response itself, the actual habit, uh, smoking a cigarette or doing a push-up or eating a donut or whatever. And then the final stage is the reward. And this is the outcome that follows your behavior. And so, of course, we could have a, a behavior followed by like a consequence by something that's not enjoyable. But in that case, it rarely forms into a habit because when you have a reward that follows an experience, it's like a positive emotional signal to your brain that says, hey, this felt good. You should do this again next time. And so it's really the experiences that are rewarding to us that that get us to come back to them again and again and repeat it, that become habitual. So you kind of need all four of those for a habit to form. You need a cue, something that, that grabs your attention. You need a craving, uh, some kind of interpretation or prediction about that cue that says, hey, I should act on this. Uh, you need to take the action, do the response, and then finally, some kind of reward or outcome, some type of positive benefit. Every habit, even the bad ones, they serve you in some way. Okay, so let's take the smoking example and just run through one real, real quick. Let's say I'm a smoker, and um, like you said, there's a pack of cigarettes that I'm walking by, and I see a pack of cigarettes on the on the on the table. The craving for me is obviously I want to have a smoke. Um, how do I hardwire my response to to make sure that I don't fall for that craving at that point? Yeah, good question. So. Um Generally speaking, I, uh, I think that they're, well, first of all, just let me, I'm going to back up just real quick Mm -hmm. and give a little bit more of an explanation and then I'll come back to the smoking example. So those four stages describe a habit from those four stages. We can have what I call the four laws of behavior change. And basically these are ways to adjust your habits or the environment that you're in to make it easier to do good habits and uh, tougher to do bad ones. So The first law of behavior change is to make it obvious. So you want the cues of your good habits to be obvious, available, visible. Mm. The second law is to make it attractive. So the more attractive a habit is, the more likely you are to perform it. The third law is to make it easy. So the more convenient, frictionless, easy a habit is, the more likely it is to occur. And then the fourth law is make it satisfying. So the more satisfying and enjoyable an experience is, the more likely you are to repeat it. Now, for your question about breaking a bad habit like smoking, to break a bad habit, you just invert each of the four laws. Mm. So rather than make it obvious, you want to make it invisible. Rather than make it attractive, you want to make it unattractive. Rather than make it easy, make it difficult, and then make it unsatisfying. So when it comes to breaking a habit, I think the first and the third stages are the most effective places to intervene. So in the case of smoking, first stage, make it invisible. You want to make the cues invisible. All right, there are a bunch of things you could do there. You could not keep cigarettes in the household. Um, You could hide them inside a drawer on the highest shelf, make sure they're not visible. Um, If you have a friend, for example, who you often smoke with and they stand outside of your window at work, you could ask to be moved to a different desk so that you don't see them outside smoking as often. That doesn't trigger it. So the point here is to reduce the physical cues, uh, the visual cues that prompt that habit. Now, the second stage, the one that you asked about is, all right, I see a habit uh, or I see a pack of cigarettes, um, but I automatically have this craving to smoke. How do I change that? And that's a tough one. And one of the reasons why I recommend uh, starting with the first stage or the third Mm -hmm. stage, because what you're basically asking yourself to do there is to rewire 
um, you're craving. You're asking yourself to make the cue mean something new. So previously, smoking meant I get to, and we have all these narratives that you go through in your mind. It mean it could mean I get to hang out with my friend who's smoking outside. It could mean uh, I get to reduce stress mm-hmm. because whenever I smoke, like I call my nerves. Right. It could mean um, I get to uh, resolve this nicotine craving that I have right now, this biological urge. Now, I mentioned this in the book. There's a, a book called Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking. And I've never smoked, but I've talked to quite a few smokers in my audience and friends of mine who have said that this book has helped them do what we're talking about right here, rewire these cravings. And so I I looked at it uh, to see what exactly does it do? What does it recommend? And it's kind of interesting. It basically is just a big conditioning exercise. So he says over and over uh, again in the book, things like, you think that you need to smoke to be social, but that's not true at all because you've gone to social gatherings without having a cigarette before. So clearly you don't need to smoke to be social or you think you need to smoke to calm your nerves, but smoking does not calm your nerves. It destroys the nervous system. Um, and over and over again, he just says things like this. And, uh, basically by the time you get to the end of that book, you have tried to recondition yourself to make that cue mean something new. Mm. And, Ultimately, that's the way to resolve um, the the stage that you're talking about, which is the second stage. And then we have the third and fourth stage, which, you know, the third stage could be something like increasing the friction or the difficulty of smoking. So sometimes this is done by the government when they raise prices. Um, So now it's harder to get a cigarette because it's more expensive. Uh, Sometimes it can be done on your part. So again, like not keeping cigarettes in the household not only makes it invisible, but it also makes it harder to smoke one because you don't have one around. Um, and then you have the fourth stage, which is make it unsatisfying. This one, you know, at this point, it's like, imagine if, uh, every time you smoked a cigarette, you were wearing a bracelet that shocked you or, uh, time you smoked a cigarette, you had a friend who slapped you in the face or something like that. Um, and so those are ways to make that experience less satisfying and hopefully, uh, make it less likely you fall into it. But you can already see as I talk through these, and this is true for any habit, some strategies are more uh, reasonable for a particular habit and others are less. And so it's kind of like you have a set of tools in the toolbox and you're looking to pick the one that best fits the circumstance. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, it's important because I think, uh, you know, yeah, for sure. Every, every situation is different. So you have to be careful and and people have different sort of, uh, cravings and responses and trigger points that will, that will help them be successful or cause them to stumble. Um, part of sort of rewiring, uh, your, your, your framework, um, you know, you, you went over the book and, and you said that, um, like the goal is not to be, to read a book, it's to become a reader, um, or it's not to, uh, run a marathon, it's to become a runner. So it's, it's, uh, changing your sort of uh, personality and who you, how you define yourself. And I think that's pretty powerful. And, and, um, you know, along those lines, how important do you think, um, sort of self discipline and self-control and that sort of uh, thing because th- different people have different levels of this right and some people are very regimented and, and they have a lot of self-control and very disciplined others are kind of they're, they're just not wired that way so how important do you think that is in success uh, in, in seeing uh, someone be successful in building new habits well it's probably very important um, but we I think the state of the science right now is not it's like on the cusp but not quite there yet mm. for us to um, for us to know exactly how it works or where to intervene and so one of the later chapters in atomic habits is called um, the truth about talent uh, and it's about how genes impact your your habits and behaviors and the one of the a couple of the takeaways are um, first your your understanding your genes, understanding your uh, how your personality is shaped, um, can help inform your strategy about building better habits. So, a lot of the time, people don't like to talk about genes and natural talent, and um, you know, because they think, oh, if everything's genetic, then maybe it's all fixed, and there's nothing we can do, or something like that. But I think actually that's the wrong lesson to take away. The the correct lesson to take away is if you understand your predisposition more, if you understand um, what type of person you are, then you can better inform your strategy for getting the result that you're looking for. So there, uh, let's talk about personality for a second. So there's there are a variety of ways to measure personality. Um, one of the most 
scientifically robust is uh, called the Big Five, and it basically maps personality onto five spectrums. So one of the most common ones is um, introversion on one end, extroversion on another. And there are other ones like your levels of agreeableness or conscientiousness, which is like how orderly you are and so on. And basically all five of these traits, these spectrums, have been linked to your underlying genetic code. And there are uh, quite a few interesting studies that have shown uh, kind of the genetic predisposition to certain ones or another. So, for example, uh, one study found that um, if you have babies, uh, if you have babies in the nursing ward and you play a harsh noise on one side of the room, some of the babies will turn toward the noise and some of them will turn away. And when researchers track those children as they grow up, they find that the ones that turn toward the noise are more likely to uh, become extroverts and the ones that turn away are more likely to become introverts. Similarly, people who are high in uh, agreeableness, which is another one of the spectrums, they tend to have higher natural levels of oxytocin. Um, So there's like a hormonal change there. So my point is there are definitely some biological underpinnings to what we call your personality. And you can imagine that, say, someone who's high high in agreeableness, that tends to be the kind of person who is warm and considerate Mm. and kind. And if that's your natural predisposition, it might be easier for you to get in the habit of writing thank you notes or organizing friends for social gatherings and things like that. And so uh, if you understand that, then you might be able to better select the type of habit that fits your personality. Like let's say that someone who is uh, high in agreeableness is trying to build an exercise habit. Well, they might really like a group class because they get other people there. Um, Same way with someone who's high in extroversion. Meanwhile, somebody who's uh, low in extroversion or is more of an introvert, they may enjoy a class where they're not in public as much, where it's a home workout program or something like that. And both people are building exercise habits. It's just allowing you to alter your strategy to better fit who you are. And um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity there, uh, but we're still in the early stages of understanding the genetic underpinnings of personality and how that might translate into actual habits and behaviors and approaches. Right. So it could be actually very valuable in helping you sort of uh, set up your program um, and, and have it more targeted if you know what your, what your uh, sort of pre, pre, predetermined or, or generic predisposition is. Um, I wanted to ask you, James, so there's been, you know, there've been a number of books written in the past about habits and, and this sort of thing. Um, you know, there, there's many studies that say it takes X amount of days, you know, 21, 30, 60 days to form a new habit. Is there actually science behind that? And what are your views on that? Yeah. So uh, this is a, a very common question I get. How long does it take to build a new habit? That kind of thing. Yeah. As you mentioned, you have all kinds of stuff, 21 days, 30 days, whatever. There was one study uh, that showed that on average, it took about 66 days. But even within that study, the range was quite wide. So, you know, something simple like drinking a glass of water at lunch each day, that might have just been three weeks. Uh, Something more complicated, like going for a run after work each day, that might have been, you know, seven or eight months. But I think that there are kind of two lessons to take away. So the first is asking how long does it take is sort of the wrong question. Um, (laughs) it, It kind of should be like, how many does it take? Because habits don't form based on time. They form based on frequency, you know, like how long did it take for you to get in the habit of checking your smartphone? I mean, for most of us, it happened almost immediately. It was only a couple of days. And you know, the average person now, the number keeps going up every year, but we check our phones more than 150 times a day. And so my point there is there's a lot of repetition and 30 days could pass and you could do something once, or you could do something a thousand times. And it's the actions that you repeat that are the ones that your brain learns to automate. So it's more about putting your reps in right. and less about worrying about how much time has elapsed. But then the second, and I think perhaps the more important and more meaningful uh, answer to this is that the implicit uh, assumption behind the question, how long does it take to build a habit is, well, how long until it's easy? Or how long until I don't have to work that hard anymore? And I think that it's important to realize that the honest answer to that question is, how long does it take to build a habit? Well, forever, because if you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. Like habits are not a finish line to be crossed. They're a lifestyle to be lived. 
And so rather than looking at it as, oh, maybe I can work hard for 30 days and then I'll be done. It's probably more effective to look at it as what is a sustainable small change I can make that can become my new normal? How can it become part of my lifestyle? And I think that that helps uh, illuminate why small habits, atomic habits are, uh, are so important because what you're really looking for is not to just like do this sprint and then cross the finish line and be done. What you're really looking for is to become a new type of person, to live a new kind of, you know, an upgraded or improved lifestyle. And uh, so I think that focus on long-term change is an important one that's often missed um, with that question. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I guess the, the easiest parallel is sort of fitness, right? And when people go on these 30-day or 60-day or 90-day programs, and then it's not like you can just okay, I'm going back to my old lifestyle after that and everything's going to maintain itself. Um, like you said, it's like habits never end. It's just you want to change the type of person you are. You want to make a lifestyle change. And uh, and so, yeah, what are the small micro habits, atomic habits that you can you can form to, to be successful? Um, so as someone myself who, you know, I consider myself fairly disciplined and I kind of understand how um, how discipline kind of over over the course of even a day, you know, you can kind of get fatigued towards the end of the day and you have less willpower and that sort of thing. So I'm a morning person. I, I get my stuff done in the morning. Um, how do you as a as someone who. Uh, you know, as a, as a high achiever, I imagine, um, you know, how do you, how do you personally, or how do you suggest people deal with sort of burnout? And, and, you know, I mean, look, we've all been to the gym where it's kind of, you, you're doing it and you're forcing the reps, but you know, at some, sometimes you just aren't feeling it right. Or as you're going through this habit building process, you know, there, there'll be times where you just are, are completely burned out. How, how, how do you suggest someone deal with that? Yeah, for sure. It's a great question. So I think um, certainly we all, I have felt this as well, you know, you like do something for a while and then you start to feel bored or tired of Mm -hmm. it and start to feel fatigued. So I think there are two, two things. Uh, So the first one is um, maybe more useful in the beginning, but every now and then it can be helpful to mix it up. And that is that choose the form of a habit that brings you the most joy or that feels the best in the moment. Like a lot of the time people, so you just mentioned exercise they'll choose to, you know, like go to the gym and work out because they think, oh, you know, I need to suffer to do this to get the the outcome that I want or whatever, but it doesn't make them feel good in the moment. And so then it's really hard to stick with something if you don't enjoy it. But there are many different forms of exercise, right? Like you could go rock climbing or kayaking or hiking, a daily walk, do yoga, Pilates. Not everybody has to lift weights like a bodybuilder. So um, choose the form of the habit that is most enjoyable to you. Similarly, uh, similarly with like reading habits, sure. Reading nonfiction books like atomic habits is great. I really enjoy it. I think a lot of people get, get a lot out of it, but if you want to read romance novels or, um, young adult fiction or whatever, um, that's great. Go ahead and read that stuff. If that's what excites you. Like the more important thing is to read. And, um, so the point is there are different styles. So focus on the one that, that feels good, uh, that gives you some kind of intrinsic motivation. And then the second thing though, is that even for the one that feels good, like for me, I enjoy lifting weights. There are going to be some days where it just feels like a slog, yeah. you know, like you don't feel like playing or you don't feel like doing the next rep or whatever. And, um, on those days, I think that it's helpful, uh, to, use basically what could be called a habit tracker, uh, although it can take many different forms because, uh, the larger principle here is that one of the most motivating feelings is the feeling of progress. If you feel like you're making progress, then you have a reason to continue. And this is one of the reasons why video games are so addictive or why people get hooked on them so much, because there are all kinds of signals of progress in video game. Like in the top corner, there's a little counter that shows your score Mm -hmm. There, you know, if you uh, grab weapons or rubies or power-ups or resources or whatever, um, there's some kind of music or chime or noise. And that's a signal that, hey, you got it. You picked it up. Even the little like pitter-patter of steps as you run through a level is a signal that you're making progress and advancing through the level. And in real life, it's a little bit different than a video game. Like you don't always have those immediate signals of progress. And so a habit tracker can be helpful for generating that. So for example, for my workouts, I track them in two ways. Uh, the first way is I just write down each set and rep that I do. And so, you know, I have this little notebook and as I'm going through the workout, it feels like I'm making progress. I can see it right there as I write the next set on each one. Then at the end, not only does it feel good to close the book on a, on another workout, 
it also I also have a, an actual habit tracker where I can sort of see like the whole month at a glance. And I just put an X on each day that I do uh, the workout or a little dot or something like that. And uh, my dad does this as well. He likes to swim. And so each day that he does, uh, it goes to the pool, he'll put a little X on his calendar. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of each month, he counts up how many he has. And uh, it's a small thing, but it can count for more than what you might imagine because there are going to be some of those days, like the days that you just described, where you just don't feel like you have it. You don't feel like showing up. And on the bad days, it's easier. It's really easy to forget all the progress you've made. Um, and so if you have a tracker like that, something visual to look at, it's just a nice reminder of, okay, today's not going well, but look, you've had, you know, 12 workouts in the last three weeks or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so it gives you a reason to show up again. It gives you a visual uh, proof of the progress that you're making. So Ultimately, I think uh, you can sustain motivation by selecting the right habit and having some visual markers of the progress that you're making. Yeah, it's quite interesting what you you brought up, uh, and you talk about this in the book, is the the, the video game and the, the positive feedback that the, the game actually gives that a lot of people don't even know. I mean, I, I actually didn't know, I didn't recognize that until you I read it in your book. And, and then I was like, oh, yeah, that's what that is. And you know what? It, it does feel good, even the the pitter patter of the, of the guy running around with his gun. Um, so that's quite interesting. And I think that, um, on the, on the habit stuff and, and yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I lift too, I enjoy lifting, but there are days where I, I'm just not feeling it, but you know, I started working out in the morning a long time ago, over a decade ago. And, and the reason that I did it personally was because, um, I knew that if I accomplished nothing else that day, at least I got my workout in. So it's the same sort of thing. And I mean, if you, uh, you know, if you have an X on your calendar or whatever, at least you, you get some sort of positive feedback there. Um, James, thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing all your findings and, and from your book. Um, it's been, it's been uh, really good hearing, uh, you know, some of the things that you cover. Um, last couple of questions as we look to wrap up, you know, and my, my audience is a lot of entrepreneurs, startup founders, investors and this sort of thing. Um, I'm just curious, are there any sort of uh, core habits, if you will, maybe a handful that you would suggest are somewhat applicable to every entrepreneur that, you know, you can based on, you know, you're an entrepreneur as well, based on your experience, um, are there a handful that you would strongly suggest that everyone try to at least consider implementing in their lives? For sure. I think you could lump them sort of into two buckets. So I would call them habits of energy and habits of focus. Mm -hmm. So habits of energy are basically just address this fact that your body is the home that you live in every moment of your life. And so if your body is not uh, running well, it's really hard to show up and work on your startup or your project with the best energy. Um, and so you need good habits of energy, good habits that deliver energy. So this is basic stuff that pretty much everybody's aware of. But um, sleep habits, uh, make sure that you get probably eight hours or so. If I'm training heavy, I try to go for nine, um, not always possible, but, um, so good sleep habits, uh, good exercise habits, you know, again, could take many different forms. We've talked about that already. And then nutrition is the third one. Mm -hmm. Uh, personally, that's the one that I probably need to dial in the most. Um, but, uh, but I've done an okay job of it. I would say I do a good job about 50% of the time. Um, and so those three, if you can get those handled, then you're going to have pretty good energy to show up each day. Then you have what I would call habits of focus. And so this is basically making sure that you either focus on the right thing or that you're thinking clearly. Um, so some simple ones, um, prioritizing your to-do list each morning. We all have things that we need to get done. Uh, on some days, I work on the most important thing first, but on a lot of days, I don't. And I would say that almost all of us could benefit from working on the task of the greatest priority. And so this is just a simple habit. It's like, after I make my morning cup of coffee, I write my to-do list. After I write my to-do list, I prioritize the items on that list and work on the first one. And um, again, small thing, but it can end up making a big difference because mm. you know that you won't have an unproductive day because at least you're working on uh, the right thing. Another habit of focus that I've been implementing the last couple of years, uh, really just the last year, I leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. Uh, it doesn't work for every job. Some jobs revolve around the phone, but man, if you can do it, it really helps because I get a block of like three to four hours each morning where I get to work on the things that are on my agenda and not respond to everybody else's agenda, which is wow. something that I think a lot 
of entrepreneurs and founders feel like, you know, they got to keep the, the ship running. Right. Um, so that's another example of a habit of focus. And then the third one that I'll throw in there is writing. Uh, of course, I'm biased towards writing because my actual, you know, part of my actual job is being an author. But I think it doesn't matter if you publish it or share it with anybody. Writing, everybody has to write on their job. Um, at a minimum, you're writing emails and memos mm-hmm. to you know other people in your company or clients or whatever. And if you can express yourself well clearly, then that not only helps you sell better uh, and also interact with those people better, but I also find that for me, writing is thinking. In many cases, I don't know what I think about something until I have written about it. And uh, so the, the daily practice of writing, even if it's just you know one paragraph uh, on some topic that's important for you or your business, I think can clarify your thoughts on the matter. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll offer those two buckets as, uh, as good habits that can probably serve nearly any entrepreneur. Those are great. I think that the, the cell phone thing is, is pretty fascinating, uh, not, not having that for the morning. Um, how, how do you deal with this on the sleep side? Because uh, I know that I'm, I'm guessing that you, like many sort of high achievers, have a hard time switching the brain off. I know I certainly do at night. And um, is it, I, do you not bring your phone in also to the bedroom? Is that another thing that you follow? Yeah, it's this one's a really hard one because um, <laughs> I would say that this is probably the one I struggle with the most. Not yeah. sleep. Sleep itself is fine, but what I would call a power down routine. Um, uh-huh. You know, I'll often hit a, a window around like 9 or 10 p.m. where I feel like, oh, you know, maybe I could do, get another, you know, hour of work in or something. Um, answer emails or work on a project or whatever. And so I think, oh, I'll just do a little bit. And then I turn around and it's like midnight or 1 a.m. Yeah, um, right. And I think that happens to a lot of founders. And so... Um, what my solution is, I don't have any meetings in the morning and I just sleep in. Um, and so if I'm up till midnight or one, then I'm sleeping in until eight or nine and, uh, it's not ideal, but it at least ensures that I don't cheat myself on sleep, which I know that I do better work. If I get up earlier that like that window in the morning is a, a period when I think pretty well and work well. Um, so my preference would be go to bed at 10 or 11 and wake up at seven or eight or something right. like that. Um, but it doesn't always work that way. And when it doesn't, um, I, I don't have meetings and I, I sleep in, um, so that I can at least be refreshed for the mm-hmm. next day. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a tricky one. I'm, I've been struggling with that for a number of years. Um, and because the easy solution, it's, you know, I mean, if you, you might want to sleep in, but your four year old doesn't care, um, <laughs> that's so, right. uh, you know, there, there are additional complicating factors. Yeah, there's 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 some life factors there, but uh, um, all good stuff, James. Uh, so last two questions. Uh, second to last one is uh, any. I mean, you 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 literally just are off uh, coming coming off of a, a a book launch. So, but I'm just curious to to hear if you have anything else exciting in the pipeline. What do you got lined up for 2019? Um, anyone that's written anything uh, uh, remotely close to a book, um, let alone a a New York Times bestseller would know just how daunting the, you know, I have a newfound respect for authors. I wrote a, a fitness book a, a couple of years ago and it was, it was, it was hell and it wasn't, it was nothing. It was just a, you know, a couple hundred pages of, of, of my thoughts, but anyone that's written anything, uh, real like yourself knows that it's, it's a, it's a really, really big, uh, mountain that you have to, to climb. So, uh, anything exciting for 2019? Yeah, we actually do have a few things in the pipeline. So uh, I'm coming out with a habit journal, um, and uh, I have the the prototype sitting on the or the first one from production sitting in front of me right now. Oh, um, great. And I'm actually really excited about it. It comes out uh, January 8th is when I start shipping, um, and it's just called the Clear Habit Journal. And um, it's basically a dot grid notebook. So it's got like you know 190 pages or so. If you do bullet journaling or things like that, you can use it for that. But at the beginning, there is a section that I specifically designed to make it easy to build a journaling habit. Uh, so you basically journal one line per day. And then at the back, there is a section with uh, habit trackers, 12 habit trackers, one for each month. So what we talked about earlier, like tracking your workouts or things like that, you can use it for that. And then in the very back, there's a little appendix that shows you different ways to use the journal. So like if you wanted to use it as a decision journal, which is something a lot of um, a lot of traders and investors do. Uh, It has a format for that and some questions to ask yourself and shows you how to lay it out. Or if you want to use it as um, a productivity journal for like organizing your tasks, there are some examples of exercises you can use there and so on. But 
anyway, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, so that comes out in January. And then um, we have a, a habits bootcamp course that'll be coming out in March. And the rest of the time will be focused on uh, talking about atomic habits and sharing that. Uh, I usually do about one speaking event per month at companies and things like that. So I'll be on the road a little bit. And uh, yeah, otherwise, I'm just really excited to see what, what 2019 brings. I think we should have a really um, my hope is to have the most effective suite of tools for building better habits by the end of next year. Um, and none of the fluff, you know, like we're not going to build anything that isn't necessary just because we could. Right. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to see how it all goes. Awesome. And, uh, so habit journal is out January 8th. We'll get that, uh, linked up to the show notes. Where's the best place people can find you, follow you and pick up a copy of atomic habits today if they want to. And I know that you have a lot of bonuses, uh, that you've thrown in, um, which is awesome. Where can, where can people pick up a copy or, or just find you and follow you? Sure. So if you just want to check out some of my work, you can just go to jamesclear.com. Uh, feel free to click on articles and you know just kind of poke around. I have them organized by topic so you can see what interests you. Uh, social media links are also uh, jamesclear.com. So that's just a, a good starting place. And then if you'd like to get a copy of the book, um, you can either click on books when you're on jamesclear.com or go to atomichabits.com and that'll take you straight to the book page. And as you mentioned, on that page, there are a variety of downloads and resources. So there's a guide on how to apply the ideas in the book to parenting, a guide on how to apply the ideas in the book to business. There is um, a template for tracking your habits and uh, a set of downloads like um, that come with the book. So like the images in the book and uh, some additional resources and things like that. But Anyway, uh, all of that is at atomichabits.com. Fantastic. This is so great. Um, thank you so much again, James, for your time. I think that this is a perfect way to start 2019. And uh, I'm excited to, uh, to, to dig in and, and, and form some of my own habits and, and excited to see how, how, um, how your sort of business uh, moves along and, and for some of the, the new sort of products around habits that you come up with. So thanks again and best of luck in 2019. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All of the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer. That's J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.